collective power. We are out to transform trauma system-wide by presenting a mirror of the system to itself. Each month, we focus on one system, and each episode, we focus on one person's experience and their angle. At the end of each month, we bring all those angles together to reveal a new big picture. Stay with us to discover our collective power and what's possible for our city, for our country, and our world. I am Dr. Rita Fierro, and I am your host. Good morning, everyone. Um, really excited this morning to have with us Damon Jones. Good morning, Damon. Damon, can you hear me? Yes. Yes. Okay, wonderful. And Damon is an active police officer that I think is just getting off his shift and walking into his house right now, right? So you have some grace in terms of the fumbling and looking forward to talking with you this morning. Thank you for making time for us. Oh, thank you. And I'm a correction officer. I apologize. Oh, yeah. No, no. I apologize for the mistake. Damon, you and I met 10 years ago on the day my niece was born. So you're like special to me in an interesting kind of way in that um, you're special to me in an interesting kind of way because we met on this day that was really, really special to me. And we were in an undoing racism training, which is awesome. Yes. And uh, yes. we're reconnecting kind of years later. I've been on your listserv of like blacks and law enforcement. I've been on your mailing list for some time. And that's yes. kind of how I've stayed connected. Tell me, before we kind of go into what your work is and what your take is on kind of the most political aspects of what we're doing today, give us like a feeling for who you are. Like, is there a story you can tell us about you that would give us a sense of who you are and what's important to you in the world? I am adopted son of a of a black woman who um, was married and was widowed, and as many single mothers struggle to make ends meet, raising a, a black child in a society that looks at black people as something less. And I've grown up to be in law enforcement because it was something that I thought was a proud profession. My uncle was one of the first black captains for New York State Correction. On my father's side, my mother's side, my uncle on my mother's side was one of the first black sheriffs in the county, in their home county. So I, I saw law enforcement as, as an honorable profession and something that wasn't foreign to me. So in being in law enforcement, I noticed that the criminal justice system is very different for black people as it is white people. 30 years in the Department of Corrections, I've watched three generations of families come in. At some point, you have to wonder, is this system actually just? And then dealing with police brutality cases and, and, and joining black law enforcement organizations and being able to travel throughout the world, I've noticed that 
black law enforcement um, problems are seen. Whether if you go to Canada, you go to England, you go to South Africa, or you go to different states in America, we all face the same plight. So in that, in, you know, I've taken the task to try my best to address these inequities in law enforcement. So given that view and that experience you've had, like, how do you make sense of what's happening right now in regards to George Floyd's death? George Floyd's death is, unfortunately, George Floyd's death is nothing new. Um, I've been on the job for 30 years. Um, when I started, there were stories back then and hearing stories from um, elder brothers and sisters down in black law enforcement organizations, we understood that the George Floyd. What was different from the from the seventies and the eighties is that it was able to be recorded on what we call a cell phone now. Mm. So and with social media, you see it every day. What was very unique about the George Floyd story is the fact that you had the COVID nineteen you didn't have any distractions. You had no sports. You had no, <laughs> no NASCAR. You had no sport and play. You, you couldn't go out. And the world, which was locked in, watched a man die. Watched a man scream for his mother and ultimately lose his life at the hand of a police officer. And I think that as the world stopped, the world's conscience was shocked. Hmm. Sometimes I believe in divine action. And I think he was a sacrificial lamb. So this thing will change because there were so many other situations put in place to make the world recognize the police terrorism of black people in America. I'm pausing because hearing that from a police officer <laughs> I feel like I've been you know I did some police community work evaluating a program in Newark uh -huh. New Jersey for the past four years it was always my dream to hear an officer say that so I'm just like <laughs> letting my heart settle into the fact that what you said and there's a power in the truth right like there's a power in and a healing in the truth mm -hmm. and I think one of the things I learned from evaluating that work is that one of the toughest things is to have um, black police officers speak out on what it's like for them inside the department. Right. right. And there has to be internal racism because there is everywhere else in the United States. Right. If there right. weren't, I would be like, Oh my God, how did you guys rid the institution of all races? And we know that's not true. So I'm just curious, like, What's your experience as a black officer in the system? Like well, you I talked mean, about the terrorism on the outside, right? Like what is it like on the inside of that? It's the same. Depending on the department you're in and depending on the officer you are, you could be one that will speak out against it and address it. Or you could be one that will have blinders on and act like you don't see it just because you want to make money and make some overtime and get promoted 
and rise up the ranks because the culture itself is racist. I've been very outspoken most of my career on issues, at, you know, even at my job or out in the street where I've been labeled anti-police. It's funny because the narrative of black law enforcement organizations from white officers, they call us the racist organization. Mm. They tell new black officers, you don't want to join those guys. They're racist. <laughs> and I think it's funny that they do that. I've, I've had white people ask me, why do you want to be a part of a black law enforcement organization? You know, she says, well, what if we make a white law enforcement organization? And I say, you already have one. That's your police department. That's right. You already have one. You already have a white organization, and, and that's your local police department. Even if you have a white mayor, a black mayor, right, like Buffalo, that has a high percentage of black people that live there, the police department is controlled by white people. Even with a black police commissioner like Buffalo, if the police union is strong enough to make 57 officers resign from a unit, in support of two officers that assaulted a man, we have a problem. We have a problem that needs to be addressed and it needs to be talked about. So being a black officer is really hard. Like people don't talk, and, and a lot of media, they don't want to talk about that. They don't want to have that discussion. I've been called by a couple of the news outlets and you know, they just want the drama. Right. Not not the real story on how, you know, black officers feel and what they go through. I always say that being a black officer, you're four degrees of separation from the victims of police criminality. Right. Either, you know, the victim, you know, somebody that knows the victim. The victim is a family member. And a lot of times as black law enforcement, we are the victims, too. Because they don't see the badge that's in our pocket. Here in New York, there's been approximately 30 cases where black officers off duty or in plain clothes on duty have been shot, shot at, or killed by their white counterpart that's in uniform. And this never happened in the verse. You will never find an incident where a black officer, black uniformed cop, shot at, shot, or killed a white off-duty cop or plain clothes cop. You will never find that. So that's what we have to face as black officers. So we face the racism in the department, trying to get the respect from our white comrades. And then we look at traitors from the black community because they feel that we are not addressing the issues or addressing our white comrades or addressing the racism that's in the law enforcement or the criminal justice system itself. So you get it from both sides? Yes, we do. Why do you stay? Like, why do you stay in the work? What keeps you in the work? Um, but what keeps me in the work, I'm still able to help. I'm still able to be a mentor I'm still able to be a role model. I'm still able to let people know that even though like, there are those that are 
that cross the line, but there are those good officers that will speak out. My mentors, some of them been retired for 20 years, and they are still in the fight, you know, even after retirement. So this is a fight that has to continue to fight. We, we have to fight, and it has to be someone to speak truth to power. Black officers are scared. A lot of black officers are very scared to speak out because of the retribution. So I stay in the work because I, I truly believe it's something that God wants me to do. And I've been good at it. I've been good at it. So I guess something's right. What does good at it look like? I think we're good at there's it. so much pain and frustration, right? What does good at it look like? When I say I'm good at it, I am able to explain so people can understand what needs to be done in this institution. I watch on TV a lot of times these TV hosts and guests talk about reforming and changing the police department and accountable. And really, they have no clue. Even lawyers that talk from a legal stance. Um, they still miss the mark because you're not addressing the culture. You're not addressing the DNA of this institution. And when I go out there or other people that are in organizations that I belong to, we try to address that. We try to um, help kids and people understand. And not only that, help them maneuver through that. We, we have a program. Um, the National Black Police Association, in 1974, they created a program that a, a lot of people use now, what to do when stopped by the police. But we changed the program 10 years ago to how do you survive police confrontation? So our whole thing is now to try to teach black and brown people how do they survive? How do they get out of that situation alive? to get home to their family and then, you know, make the necessary complaints or regress if they feel that their life or their rights have been violated by law enforcement. So what's your take on the defund police movement? I understand motion around defunding the police, but I always tell people I was taught if you, are going to replace something, you need to have something to replace it with. If the black community is going to request to defund the police, then what security system will they have in place for public safety? The black community needs to begin to police itself, like the Hasidic Jewish community police themselves. The police just can't run up in the Hasidic Jewish community. Police just can't run up and arrest a Hasidic Jew. They have to get permission to do that. So if we're going to talk about defunding the police, you know, black and poor communities must also have a real discussion on how do we police ourselves? How do we make our communities safe without the police? Or how do we transform the police, that the police actually serve the community, you know, because there's a difference. In the white community, they protect and serve. In the black community, the police contain 
and control. That is the modus operandi. So how do we get to that point? And that has to be the discussion. I believe there are certain jobs that the police shouldn't do in dealing with mentally ill people, right? But that's something that each municipality has to look at the needs of the municipality and how those needs are addressed through their police department. That's real community policing. Professor Jimmy Bell, who was the head of Jackson State University Criminology and and Sociology Department, a little known fact that he was the originator of what they call now community policing. But back then, when he started it, it was called extended community policing because you had to look at the institutions and the systems in your community and how those systems work around public safety. We're having this talk now when they talk of defunding. Well, the police shouldn't do this. The police shouldn't do that. The police shouldn't do that. Exactly. These are the things they shouldn't do. But you have to put systems in place so the police don't have to do that. You're dealing with more mentally ill people because they're taking away the system to assist mentally ill people and they put it on the police department when that should never happen. Yeah, like I'm fascinated by this because you're saying that extended community policing as a model, which is the origin of what's now called community policing, was actually mm-hmm. looking at the systems and shifting the systems around policing. Yes. So that's exactly. fascinating to me because all I've heard about community policing feels more like like we have a rec center run by police officers where youth can go play basketball. Like we have that's kind of a few blocks from me, right, in Germantown. Or I've heard like things like coffee with a cop or barbecues or everything I've heard about community policing sounds more like hanging out as opposed to looking at systems to have systems shift. So are you saying that the original vision of community policing was distorted? We took systems out and then we kind of left everything else? Yes, it was hijacked. Can't remember, that's the call, Professor Bell. I can't remember. He started it. It was a town in Florida where they started it. And then the commissioner or the head of that police department, it was a change in government. The head of the police department got let go. New town administration came over and they put head of the police department and he flipped it around and he gained national attention for it and he called it community policing. And that's a little unknown story, but it's a true story. That's why it is what we have today. But it was based around looking at the systems, you know, looking at the institutions in in the city. And also the community having say in how their community is policed. Um, the black community is the only community that doesn't have the say in how their community policed. They are told how their community is going to be policed. Even today, like with everything that's going on, they pass bills, right? Here's the bill. This is the bill. They never talk to the community with these pieces of legislation. They're telling us what we need. They don't talk to black law enforcement. They tell us what we need. Mm. Who's they? Who's making the legislation? The the legislators, your mayor, your city council, governor, 
your, your federal government people, you would think that they would have a forum or to hear, you know, they have little ones, they put on the shows, but no, no real. So look, they, they say we're going to ban chokeholds, right? A lot of cops take martial arts, MMA, mixed martial arts, all that. You could kill somebody with a different hole than a chokehold. So if you ban chokehold, so no, I'll use another restraint. Now what? Now is that a crime? Did he violate anything? So how are you going to hold that cop accountable? They're missing the point. The people on the inside, right? In this case, the experience as a correctional officer, a police officer, you know that people are mixing martial arts with standard practices, right? And so if you create systems of accountability without that inside knowledge, you're going to create systems of accountability that have loopholes all over the place. Exactly. And And we do that in all of our systems, you know? Like, this is why we don't actually have systems change. Like, this is my biggest argument is that this is why we don't have systems change. It's because we're not talking with people with direct experience in every system, Right. Any system, every system, we're not valuing the experience of folks on the ground. We value the experience of the PhDs and the MAs and all that, but without valuing the experience of people who know life, who know what it feels like to be on the other side of it. Absolutely. And this is right. And we make those and we continue to make those type of mistakes. How are you making the law? And you're not law enforcement. You know, how are you going to address race? in the law and you don't talk to the people in the system that are a victim of that racist system all the time. And I think the easiest way to do it, and we've offered this to elected officials, any violation of policy, procedure, and training that leads to a severe injury or death is a crime. It's just that simple. There's no loopholes in that. Mm. There's no loopholes on the violation. Because if you see something that happened, you look at it. Is that in policy? No. Is that in procedure? No. Did we train you to do that? No. <laughs> Lock them up. <laughs> it's not, it's not, it's, they're, they're making this so because of politics. They're making accountability of a public servant because that's what we are, right? We're paid by the taxpayer. Everything, this nice house I'm, I'm in and my car and, and all the stuff that I have, my good benefits, it's all paid by the taxpayer. All paid by the taxpayer. It should be accountability for that. We should be held accountable for that. And we're not really held accountable for that, then there's going to be more deaths, and then there's going to be more loopholes. And then you're dealing with unions. A lot of them have a lot of money, and a lot of them have a lot of lobbying power. And part of that is I was talking to one of the county legislators here in Westchester County, and he's a Democrat in a historically Republican district. And the county unions came, law enforcement unions came after them real hard and heavy, and they put a lot of money behind his Republican opponent. And he still won. 
he still won. And one thing he said, which was very unique, he said, do you know that the other county legislators didn't really want to stand around me because they were afraid to be associated with me and get bashed by the law enforcement unions. That's the cowardness, you know, that some of these elected officials have and the perception of the power of police unions. That elected officials are scared to be labeled that anti, anti-police. But right now, you know, America is upside down that that label anti-police is a badge of honor. So now what are they going to do now? They're going to continue to go down the road and not pass meaningful legislation. Like a lot of that stuff they say is okay, right? But a lot of that stuff that they're talking about is after the fact. It's after the act. So there should be a law that's going to define police criminality. And police criminality is willingly or unwillingly violating your policies your procedures, and your training that causes severe injury or death. That's police criminality. It shouldn't be anything else. So you're saying that in the case when a person dies, like you are trained to avoid that. And so it's a lot more simple. Like if a person dies, you've not been trained to do it. It's, it's a crime, period. Right. And then right. the circumstances can be set afterwards, but right. that has right. to be even immediately persecutable. Right. As opposed right. to even, like... even, right. Let's let's examine for the listeners, let's examine Freddie Gray. Right? The Freddie Gray case. And Marilyn Mosley tried to bring criminal charges. These officers violated their policies on how to transport. They didn't seatbelt them. They didn't do A, B, C, and D, the things that they didn't do, which resulted in his death. Even when he screamed for medical attention, and and we are required to give medical attention immediately or as soon as possible, they didn't do that. But because she couldn't match their violation of policy to a criminal act, they got away. Look at um, Eric Gardner, right? Pantaleo, use a chokehold, a chokehold that is forbidden in policy, a chokehold that isn't trained. And they didn't bring any charges, criminal charges, even after coroner said it was a homicide. (laughs) The coroner said it was a homicide. And they still didn't bring charges against Pantaleo. So since we don't have a law that defines police criminality as causing death, like that's simple, right? Since we don't have a law that does that, in the end, people who make the case are trying to kind of twist these violations of policies that are basically minor. And this is why folks are getting off? Yes. Or not even being charged or not even being charged, and to the point that people scream for murder. Murder, you have to show intent. I'm wondering how they're going to get, well, well, with, with, the, with, with the Freddie Gray, I mean, uh, with the George Floyd, they could probably get intent in that. 
because even as he said he couldn't breathe, even after one of the cops, you know, questioned about giving him medical attention, the officer with his knee on his neck kept going. You could show intent in that. But a lot of these incidents of police criminality, it's hard to show intent. It's hard to show that this officer woke up in the morning and said, I'm going to kill somebody today. Mm. Right. Manslaughter is always the best charge because it's just malice. And that's what it is. Violations of policies, procedures, and training is, is malice. So manslaughter is usually the best charge. But when people do not understand the difference between murder and manslaughter and how do you prove murder, and you have to show intent, what the district attorneys do, okay, the people scream murder. I'm going to give them what they want. And then next thing you know, the, the cop walks out not guilty. But the people scream murder. And elected officials usually do what the people scream because they want to get elected. But then they lose the case. And the cop leaves, he retires, and he goes about his life with his pension. So we have to be educated. The public has to be educated in what we are trying to do and how we're trying to hold officers accountable. And I think that's always been the goal of, of black law enforcement officers, to educate the public, be the voice for the public. But, but a lot of times, you know, we haven't been heard. So, so now the people are being heard because it's for, what, it's, what's it been, 10 days now? Yes. People have been protesting. You know, they're going to still protest. And I think they should continue to protest until our elected officials have the guts to define police criminality. In your pointing out that, so there are two things I want to kind of come back to because it's actually where we do have power to shift things. Mm -hmm. And so one, like I can hear your passion for legislation, right? And for not any legislation, but an actually a legislation that gets rid of most of the loopholes. And so right. what you're saying is there has to be a legislation on police criminality. And then right. I want to connect the dots between that, or at least they're the two things that I'd like us to continue talking about, and what you were saying about extended community policing. And that originally the idea behind extended community policing was addressing the systems, not just hanging out with cops, like to make each other feel good about ourselves, like to not be as scared, right. basically. So what are your thoughts around how systems shift? What are your thoughts about what it would take to create that legislation of, of police criminality? What is it going to take? It's going to take them to act. You know, it takes them to do their job and legislate, legislate. They have to, they have to legislate to the life of me. I don't understand why is it so hard? Like the Black Caucus puts out this litany of bills, New York State Assembly and Senate, litany of bills. Where the hell were they 10 years ago? You put out all these bills, boom, poof, they all come out. So you've been sitting on them. Why? You've been sitting on them. So now they want to talk about, you know, in New York, they're talking about an independent special prosecutor. We've been screaming that for 15 years. 
We've been talking about that for 15 years. So all of a sudden now, boom, because we roll up in an election year. We, the black people, brown people, poor people, they have to stop being bamboozled by these politicians. The question is, will they do all this if this wasn't an election year? If we was in an off year? Because how do you come up in 10 days mm-hmm. with nine pieces of legislation? And we've been talking special prosecutor here in New York for 15 years. Anyone can go on Blacks in Law Enforcement of America, our YouTube page, and see how long we've been talking about this. When Detective Christopher Ridley of Mount Vernon, New York, was shot and killed by county police because they thought they saw him with a gun. He was trying to make an arrest while he was off duty. They killed him. We were talking, that's over 10 years ago. So where does the law start? At what level? Like, is this a law that we get past, like, citywide, county level, state level? Like, where do we start to then create the national law? Great question. That's a great question. There's different levels. There's different accountability levels on different levels of government. First, you have to, in, on, the, on the city level, for people that are listening, on the city level, you have to have policies and procedures in place and training in your police department. Every city should have a civilian complaint review board where the citizens of that city, the residents and the taxpayers of that city, they have a legit system of regress if they feel that they have been violated or they have a problem. Now, sometimes the CCRB can come to some type of understanding between the two. It happens. But at least you have to have a system. Now, after that CCRB and those policies, your district attorney, which I always say, the most important elected officials that black people, brown people, and poor people can vote for is your district attorney and your judges. Most important. All that other stuff about the president, we can only come out when the president stuff. No, you got to come out for your district attorneys and your judges. Now, on the district attorney level, you have to have a district attorney that is not on the payroll of the police unit and that he is willing to take a chance. Whatever police department in his district says that these officers violated policy and procedure and training. Even if you don't have a state law, we're working our way up. Now, once you have that, you have to have a state attorney general that is willing to play the role and which I'd rather have appointed, but in some states uh, as an independent investigator. Because once the local district attorney realizes the law and that, then he moves it on for because the local district attorney It's a conflict of interest for them to investigate police, even though there are some district attorneys that do and they do it well. But my personal feeling, it should be passed off into an independent body just to save the integrity of the district attorney's office if something goes wrong. The state AG should come in and investigate. Now, but you still got to have the state, right? It still has to be laws. Still have to be laws to say what these 
people did a crime. Now, that's the state level. For the state laws, they have to pass a police criminality law. For everything underneath it to work properly on accountability. So when you get to the federal level, in the Freddie Gray, no, in the Mike Brown shooting, Eric Holder said that. At that time, he was U.S. Attorney General. He said that the threshold was too high for civil rights and human rights, civil rights violations. Even after he said that, nobody created legislation to what? Lower the threshold. So on a federal level. So explain what higher threshold or lower threshold means for folks. The threshold is too high for them to say that it's a crime or it's a civil rights violation, meaning the actions, you know, even though might have been egregious, but the what is on record, it's not egregious on a federal level. So the feds can come in and say it's a civil rights violation. So now they have to lower the threshold to what actions? So the threshold is the amount of proof it takes. Is that what you mean? Yes. Okay. So the amount yes. of proof it takes to prove a civil rights violation at the federal level is so high that even in the case, I think you're saying Michael Brown, right? Like even in the case right. of Michael Brown, even with the evidence we had, the case could not be proved. Exactly. So you're saying the of next course, step right. was needed of was to pass legislation that would lower that threshold so that we wouldn't exactly. face that again. But that hasn't happened. It still wouldn't work for Michael Brown's case, but it could work for going forward, right? Right. Exactly. If they lower the threshold. I think in the packet, the Congressional Black Caucus has proposed last week on lowering the threshold. But see, they knew all this. (laughs) That's, That's all I'm saying. Like everything from the city level in having civilian complaint review boards to the district attorney to the state AG to the state legislator, to the governor, to the federal government, to the AG, they knew all this. Nobody's done anything. Even with Barack Obama's 21st century policing model, which all these police departments like to tout, we're doing 21st century policing. Yeah, we're doing 21st century policing. Well, the first step in 21st century policing is accountability. They skipped over the first step in 21st century policing. Nobody wants to talk about that step. They jump into coffee with a cop and all this other stuff, basketball games, all that's 21st century policing. No, you skipped over the first step is legitimacy and accountability. Nobody want to talk about that. And what I'm hearing from what you're saying and is connecting to what we were talking about last week with Fatima Loren is that our systems of accountability are full of loopholes. So actually our systems of accountability don't work. So even if we use the systems of accountability, there are huge gaps in our legislation that have it so that they are not effective. And I love the the map you're laying out, right? Because you're literally doing a systems map here. I love what you're proposing, right? You're saying at a local level legislation to have a local civilian complaint review board in every city 
a district attorney that's not on the payroll of police unit. So that's at the local level. And then ensuring that the state at the state level, the state attorney is an independent investigator and there's, there's a state law against police criminality. And then at the federal level, there's a legislation, there's a threshold that needs to be lower about what kind of evidence is needed for a civil rights violation. So it's like all these pieces of the puzzle have to actually fit together. Right. I think of systems like a car, right? Like you can have a motor that's perfectly fine, but if you have an oil leak and you run out of oil, your car is going to stop running. All these pieces have to function together and they have to be mindfully put together in a way that has the cog, the whole thing shift. So the other thing that I'm, that I'm really grateful to you for this conversation and for what you're highlighting is that I'm writing a new book on systems and I'm thinking about what are the mechanisms of systems that we've seen since the seventies and longer than the seventies. Like what are the ways in which systems resist change, right? Why do we end up with a racist system even in the face of all our anti-racism laws or anti-discrimination laws of the seventies? And one of the mechanisms is the co-optation of language. You can see that everywhere. And you mentioned two examples in this conversation. Like one was when you said that the police department will call you racist for being part of blacks in law enforcement. And by doing that, swaying away uh, other black police officers who are new. And then we talked about the co-optation of extended community policing. So basically extended got taken out, systems change got taken out. And then what we were left with was copy the cop. Exactly. Exactly. And now nobody likes it because everybody's like, ah, community policing don't work. Right. That's a tricky one. It's one I struggle with a lot. I'm not sure if you're familiar. There's a book by uh, Eon Lopez called Dog Whistle Politics, in which he talks about how racism, well, clearly before the Trump era, because now it's just straight in the open. But before the Trump era, there were all these hints to racism that were like dog whistles, like only people who are extremely right-leaning could like pick up the censors. And one of the, th- he mentions in there, the punch parry kick tactic, which is basically what you're saying, the co-optation of languages. It's like you hint to race. It's kind of like the conversation you had with your colleagues around black law enforcement. You hint to race. And when the other person says it, then you tell them they're racist. Um, It could become really, really prominent, like the right and the Trump supporters do it really, really well right now. It's like, oh, you mentioned race. You're racist. It's like, no, that's not (laughs) what racism means. Racism means you're using institutional power with the pretext of superiority of one group over another group. That's actually what racism means. So and the co-optation of extended community policing is intriguing I'm still trying to find my way around how do we effectively counter the co-optation of language? And I'm curious if you have any insights around that. It's a good question. I am for all police academies to have undoing racism classes Hmm. and ongoing and ongoing yearly follow-up classes on undoing racism. I think we have to, in the academy, address it. I think that's something that race 
has not been addressed in academies. It's been all about policing culture and not about really policing different ethnic groups of people. I think we, if we start that, we could change some narratives and we could change how things look. That's always been the struggle of getting these type of classes in the police academies. So I, I think that's where we could start. Maybe if the officers come out understanding. And part of the thing also is trying to hire more people from the community that knows the community, that, that are from the community. You get a guy from upstate New York and you bring him down to a city or even he works in corrections and he hasn't had a conversation with a black person. You know, how is that going to work out? <laughs> you know, we have to start uh, making sure that our police departments reflect the community that they serve. Some of these cities that have 60, 70 percent black only have 9 percent black on their police force. Hmm. How does that happen? And that's another step of community policing. Real community policing is having police from the community and also having police live in the community that they serve. That's something, too, because then the police officers have a vested interest in the community. They just don't take the paycheck and run up in the suburbs and never come back and probably don't even shop at a store there. So it also adds to the economic development. It also adds to that system that these high-paid city employees right, are living in the community, they pay taxes in the community, their kids go to school with the kids that they protect and serve, allegedly, and they're also investing in the economic livelihood of the community. That's also part of real community policing. You know, nobody wants to talk about that. Yeah, and so, so the only you... alternative is to do the real thing, like real community. Like, not calling right. it community, but actually doing community, which means, like, we have access to the same resources, we feed we see, feed the same business owners, you know, we live side by side. It's like, we have to be real community. Like, that's what actually has the language reflect. It's like, do the real thing, instead of just trying right. to call it, it something it, Exactly. Prettier. It calls on some real decisions from the elected officials, because sometimes, the police can't afford to live in the community that they serve in, too. You know, it's hard to buy a house because some of these distressed areas, you know, even though they might be distressed, in some of the areas, you have to work to change the economic development. If you have homes that are in foreclosure, then I don't understand why these municipalities don't partner with... They used to have a program called, was it Community Cop? where they gave police officers or firemen or people that work for the city low-interest loans to able to buy the homes or buy foreclosed homes that the city owned. Now your tax money is reinvested, and these people that serve the community are actually living in the community. There's few communities that if you're a police officer, you have to live in the community. Uh, Miami-Dade is like that that you have to live in the community. When my daughter went to the University of Miami, she lived right next to the place that she rented. The house right next door was a cop. You act different when you see that squad car in the driveway, because you know, Officer, Officer Bryant's home. He doesn't mm -hmm. play that way. Mm -hmm. 
and Officer Bryant will act different. He will act different when Ray Ray act up in the grocery store or something because he lives next door to Ray Ray's mama, right? You're just not going to beat up Ray Ray, and then you got to go see his mother, you know, when, when you get in your car. There's more accountability mm -hmm. on both sides. And then hiring from the community, hiring people that know the community, hiring people that went to school with the people in the community. You hire all these outside people. I've watched police departments won't put the black officers on these special units, put all white officers, and they wonder why they can't solve any homicide cases. Because nobody's talking to them. They're not from the community. But if you put somebody that's born and raised, they're going to talk to them. They're going to talk to them. So these are the things that should be done that's not doing it because the culture of policing itself, when it comes to the black community, that system of policing has always been contained and controlled, never protect and serve. We have to get that mindset of protecting and serving like they have in the white community. But also the criminal justice system itself and how policing is taught in these universities also foster culture in the police departments. We've run out of time. So your last thought oh. and how do people get in touch with you? They could go to Latin Law Enforcement of America, B-L-E-A-U-S-A dot org, or Facebook, Blacks and Law, Law Enforcement of America. There's a Facebook page. There's a Facebook group, Blacks and Law Enforcement of America. Instagram, Blacks and Law Enforcement of America. And Twitter, B-L-E-A-U-S-A. And they could go on um, YouTube, Blacks and Law Enforcement of America, and you can see a lot of our press conferences, a lot of our interviews that's online for people can see. And is that, um, do they get in touch with you that way as well? Yes, yes. You can get in touch with me through all those different different um, social media and media and online uh, mechanisms. Okay, do you have a last thought for us since I interrupted your thought? No, just everybody that's listening, pay attention to the legislations that, that people are passing and ask questions from your legislators. And remember, violations of policy, procedure, and training should be a crime. Thank you, Damon Jones, for taking time this morning to be with us. Thank you for listening to another episode of Collective Power. If you'd like to be a guest on our show, recommend a guest on our show, or write for our upcoming Medium publication, feel free to contact us at collectivepowermedia.com. You can also become a supporter and help us offset the costs of making the podcast for as little as $3 a month. To do so, go on our website at collectivepowermedia.com and click on the button that says Donate, Become a Supporter. Thank you for your courage to see the bigger picture. And until next week, drop the mic.